Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, March the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing the program. Today is the day for you to join us live on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211 or elsewhere. It's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, well, you just heard Jerry Lynn Mackey on the VOCM Morning Show quoting a listener who sent, I guess, a tweet regarding the fact that it's really a good idea to clear all the snow off of your vehicle. And it was just enough snow overnight to make it a mess. Can't really do much with this little swipe of snow. But, yeah, there's a bit of ice on the windshields this morning, so cleaning her off in full, always a good idea, as opposed to just one little fist scrape across the window, a little porthole for you to view the oncoming traffic. Anyway, let's go. Uh, here, Dan McTeague, also on the VOC Morning Show, talking about the prices we can anticipate at the pumps and to fill up our oil tanks. He forecasts a little bit of relief at the pump for gasoline down around three and a half cents tomorrow, says Mr. McTeague. Diesel down about 10 cents, although there'll be an increase in home and stove oil fuels up in the neighborhood of 12 cents. And then, of course, regarding the price of gas come April the 1st, which is on Friday, two additional cents of carbon tax will be added. So the three and a half cents really, unless you fill up before Friday. Half a cent, one and a half cents. All right, quick check in to Stratford, Ontario at the Junior National Curling Championships. We've been talking about Team Young. Let's talk about Team McKenzie. Uh, uh, Mitchell, was it McKenzie Mitchell on the women's side? They're four and two. They're having a good run at it. And on the win, on the men's side, Team Young are five and one. They won last night versus Alberta, play Ontario today. We have a second team in those uh, championships as well, Team Cleary. They're one and five, but good luck to all involved. All right. Obviously, a lot of talk about Russia these days, for the obvious reasons. But here's an interesting today in history regarding Russia. It was 155 years ago, in 1867, where the U.S. Secretary of State, William Seward, entered into negotiations with Russian Minister Eduard de Stockel, talking about the purchase of Alaska. So at the time, Tsar Nicholas II decided too difficult to defend it if it came under attack by the British, so they entertained selling it to the Americans. So they laid down this amount. $7.2 million in 1867 dollars to buy Alaska from the Russians. If you translate that to today's dollars, it's only in and around $135 million. So with the wealth of natural resources and just the geographical content of Alaska, truly extraordinary. Now, we also think that we're watching a war on the other side of the world. Russia is only about 55 miles across the Bering Strait from Alaska, but it's today in history where it was sold to the Americans for a whopping big sum of $7.2 million, $1867. Also, you know, in the neighborhood of public transit, we're talking a lot about gas emissions, and we'll get to the federal gas greenhouse gas emissions plan in a moment. The first subway in Canada is the Young Street subway. Of course, in Toronto, it was opened today in history in eight, uh, 1954. And also a very curious one, and this is where coincidences add up, Vincent van Gogh, of course, Dutch Impressionist artist. He was born today in 1853. It was also coincidentally today in history in 18, or 1987, pardon me, where the, his picture, Sunflowers, his painting, Sunflowers, was sold at auction for $39.7 million on the same day of his birth all those years later. Okay. Read a story this morning regarding a, a Labrador man, Simeon Poker. He's now moved to St. John's to be closer to the Health Sciences Center. He's awaiting a kidney transplant. More than a dozen people line up to be tested to donate their kidney to Mr. Poker, including his brothers. 
So whether it be COVID-related matters or what have you, as the poor man gets sicker and sicker as the days go by, waiting for the transplant, there's a kidney available. So these types of stories are extraordinary. We know just what the impact has been for surgical backlogs and even diagnostic procedures and what it's meant for people's health and their anxiety and their worry and their fears. But it just prompts me one more time, and we do this sporadically for all the, I think, the right reasons. Organ donation, there's so many people on a waiting list for organ or tissue donation, and so many Canadians who have not taken the next step to put their names on a donation list. It used to be you go through your driver's license, now you go through your MCP. All, it's a very easy process. You go through, you acknowledge the fact that you're willing to be an organ or a tissue donor, and then most importantly, after you do that with MCP, you sit down with your family to make your wishes known. The whole concept of opting in is a good opportunity for Canadians to pass along the gift of life. You wonder whether or not we should translate it to opt out. Everyone is automatically upon 18, we'll say, just pick an age. You're automatically an organ or tissue donor. I know there's a lot of moving parts that have to be adjusted or attended to in this province and elsewhere across the country for that to be the case. But if you haven't and you're willing to be an organ donor, haven't taken on the process, please do exactly that. Okay, sticking with healthcare. We know there's been a lot of complications during the pandemic with COVID restrictions and how many people have been waiting for a procedure and what the implication of the cyber attack that we first found out last October had taken place that crippled Meditech, the province's healthcare IT system. We haven't had an update in any form since December. But this morning at 10.30, uh, Minister Hagee and Mr. Diamond from Eastern Health are going to take to the microphones and the TV cameras to give us an update as to what's going on. Apparently the system had to be fully rebuilt. There's also the possibility for many people's personal information, their private information, banking information, their their social insurance number to have been compromised. So we'll get an update today. I don't know if we have any plans on taking any portion of that press conference today. I think it's important, and I I don't know. I didn't ask anyone up the chain whether or not we're going to cover it, but we will certainly speak to it here on this program, and I think it's an important and an awaited update. Also, yesterday... And we'll see an update on the province's COVID-19 hub at some point midday today. And this is only for the purpose of information. Because if you're someone who has been completely sick and tired of hearing COVID numbers, but at the exact same time worried about the surgical backlogs, well, you can be both at the same time. Because some of the issues where the healthcare system has tried to protect itself from a wave of hospitalizations regarding COVID, that's contributed to the surgical backlog. So... Again, for the purpose of information, once Dr. Fitzgerald told us that the system can handle between 40 and 60 hospitalizations, and then we hit 40 on Monday, inevitably, Minister Hagee was asked about it. Now, operational day-to-day concerns are at the Regional Health Authority, of course, but the buck stops on the minister's desk, and he understands that. But he says the system will just manage itself at this point. Okay, it will bring upon questions from some about the potential to reintroduce some restrictions, including the potential to reintroduce masking requirements. But, you know, even if you are tired of the COVID numbers, they're real, they'll have an impact beyond COVID. Look no further than what we're looking at with the thousands of surgeries that have been postponed, whether it be because of COVID or the cyber attack or the lack of personnel. These are all real implications. So. I get it. And every time I mention the COVID number, inevitably I'll get the same batch of people who will send me emails that are littered with exclamation marks and capital letters. 
but it has a, it has a ripple effect throughout the entire system, which is why I think it's still relevant, important for consideration. So the minister says we'll be able to manage our way through it, but okay, you want to talk about it. Let's do it. And inside of health, of course, we're anticipating the blueprint for implementation of the recommendations coming from the health accord. And a key focus on the social determinants of health, of which there are many, and one is including food. So at some point, I think very soon, we're going to have Josh Smee from Food for SNL. He's their executive director. And uh, Minister John Abbott to come on to talk about a new partnership between the government and Food for SNL called the Community Food Support Program, or FUND. I've read a bit about it. We won't get into too much detail now to steal the thunder from both those gentlemen who will join us. I think around 9.30, is it, Dave? 9.30 for the two of them. But this is an important effort. We know just how many people are struggling. There's also a story in the news this morning. You see Jody Williams down at Bridges for Hope. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the price of food has increased 40%. You know, we'll see 5% quoted and whatnot, but Mr. Williams, who's able to stretch a dollar much further than us, who are just regular consumers and customers at the grocery store. So we'll see what Mr. Smee and Mr. Uh, Minister Abbott have to say about this fund, how it's going to be utilized, where it's going to be utilized, and the hopeful positive outcomes from it. All right. Did you know there was a, a fire that was sparked on the Labrador Island link sometime earlier this month? I didn't. I had no idea. It disrupted the flow of power. Of course it did, because, of course, the GE software was unable to react in some sort of appropriate reaction to the fire. I mean, what is going on with that? Quick question. Is GE paying any sort of penalty here? You know, what's actually going on? I know they're working towards a technological solution, but it also comes with financial ramifications. It costs somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars a day just to uh, deal with the, the loan that we've struck for Muskrat Falls, the service, the debt. So I wonder what GE status is here because obviously they have been a contributing factor to the continued woes and worries and the boondoggle that is Muskrat. But apparently it's back in uh, action here now. Power is flowing to the province of Nova Scotia. And as you know, Amera struck a deal with this province for the Maritime Link on budget, on time, $1.5 billion. We, they have a deal for some 35 years, even though the lifespan of the Maritime Link, which we get in 35 years, won't be much more beyond that. So anyway... The power is now continuing to flow, but an update on costs and other issues plaguing the Muskrat Falls project probably do as well. But apparently Nova Scotia is getting even more than the power that we're contractually obligated to deliver to them. Okay. This is a massive big issue. Oh, first, both the federal and provincial government budgets will be delivered on the same day, April the 7th. I don't imagine there's much in the way of a coincidence there, do you think? But yesterday... Now, reaction to any government announcement is fast and furious, regardless of anybody's done anything beyond read the headline. But yesterday, the federal government introduced what are their targets over the next eight years for curbing greenhouse gas emissions. So, what's it called? The 2030 Emissions Reduction Plan, Canada's Next Steps for Clean Air and a Strong Economy. There's a lot to this. And it's going to take a lot of time for me to fully wrap my mind around the entirety of the plan. But it's comprehensive. It's absolutely ambitious. And it's important to remember that it's easy to talk this talk. But even the federal liberals, have they put forward all these emission cut targets that they haven't hit? So what's going to happen with this particular plan? And how is it going to impact the economy, people's health and well-being? 
I guess it all remains to be seen, but over the ne- next eight years, there are pretty significant targets that they're talking about. They're trying to put forward a plan to slash emissions by 40 to 45 percent below 20 or 2005 levels all in the next eight years. It comes with a variety of issues, but they're standing firm with their current carbon pricing regime. So moving from 50, uh, 50 bucks a ton to 170 by 2030. All right. All kinds of stuff here. Even when it talks about trade and border carbon adjustments, they're talking about slapping tariffs on countries for the importation of their goods if they don't have a price on carbon. That's not unlike many parts of the world who are on the, the exact same path. If you read between the lines, there's no mention of any a specific oil and gas proposal. But if they're talking about doing away with uh, government financing of oil companies and gas companies, they're also talking about and acknowledging the fact that there's going to be decades of continued reliance on fossil fuels and utilization of fossil fuels, but they're talking about low carbon. And if we're talking about the light sweet crude off of our shores and the low carbon emissions, even though oil is a life cycle issue, not just extraction, if you read between the lines, it may indeed be of comfort and looks like maybe Bade Nord might be part of this plan. You know, they're talking about companies, not only about the, uh, the light sweet crude, but they're also talking about companies who are willing to put in all the mitigation measures, carbon storage and utilization, all these types of things, which Equinor absolutely has in their proposal. So maybe, just maybe, this gives a little bit of optimism to those who are, who are proponents of the Beta Nord development in the Flemish Pass. So that decision due, of course, by the 13th of April. But I have a funny feeling we're going to hear about that prior to there's also massive attention, you know, well, the oil and gas sector uh, adds up to 26% of the emissions in the country in full. Next is the transportation sector, which comes a very close second at 25%. They're talking about massive investment in electric vehicle uh, infrastructure. They're also talking about the fact that they're going to put a very similar to France. They're hoping to have the electric vehicle sales at 60% by 2030. And at 2035, let me make sure I get the exact right numbers here. Okay, the federal mandate will dictate that at least 60% of all new vehicles sold in 2030 are electric vehicles before rising to 100% in 2035. So after that, Canadians won't be able to buy a new internal combustion engine. That's an extraordinary thing. They're also talking about $400 million in new funding to uh, uh, add some 50,000 charging stations to the grid. But there's whopping big stuff inside of this particular plan. And some people will freak out. It's inevitable, especially regarding the uh, price on pollution, even though it used to be all hands thought it was a good idea until it became political as opposed to policy. There's also, I think, an important focus here. And we'll see what becomes of the Beta Nord project and future opportunities for oil and gas in this province. But when there was a federal government pot of money established to support oil and gas companies and various projects, it had zero, uh, zero focus on workers. And any plan to talk about any form of transition, whether it be over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, has got to have a focus on the workers as well. It's not always just about the corporations. Inside of this plan, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 billion for what they're calling a futures fund. So that residents and workers in the oil and gas sector of Alberta,
Alberta, Saskatchewan, and this province to help get some upgrades for their transferable skills to gain new skills to move off to other possibly more secure opportunities. So this is a good part of the $9.1 billion. Some focus on workers because we forever and a day have talked about the companies and we've helped the companies and we funded and subsidized the companies. So now that there's some money set aside for workers and there might be opportunities for you if you're in the field or moving into the field or newly hired in the oil and gas sector for some secure employment for years to come. But for some, they might be looking for another opportunity. So I do think in regard to this province specifically, if they're talking about low carbon emissions and companies willing to put the emission mitigation plans, carbon capture and otherwise in play, it might just say without saying it out loud that Bailey Nord is a good plan. All right, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? All right, we're on Twitter. We are VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But let's get a tune going before we come back and speak with you. It was today in 1968 for the third straight week, Otis Redding with the classic, The Dock of the Bay, what we all call sitting on the dock of the bay, remained at number one. Here's Otis Redding. When we come back, let's talk. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So I think I said at the Men's Junior Curling Nationals that our two teams, Team Young, and I've Apparently I said Team Cleary when it's Team O'Leary is the second team, so my apologies there. And I even had it written down in front of me as O'Leary, but apparently I said Cleary. Oops. All right, what are we doing here? Let's go to line number three. Doc, you're on the air. Hiya, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How about you? Uh, pretty good, boy. You had a good week's rest, I suppose. Not bad. Uh, you needed it. Oh, uh, yeah, no true words were ever spoken. I'd say... Uh, no, listen, Paddy, I just want to make a few statements this morning about uh, our offshore. Given the decision that will come down, maybe you, you kind of figure it will be before the 13th. But, and it may be, but in either case, it will come down in the middle of the month. And uh, I just want to say, number one, that uh, Baden Nord is an environmentally good project. It's been approved by the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. It's a very low-emission project. It's good for Canada. It's good for Newfoundland Labrador. It's good for the world, and it should be approved. Uh, secondly, this is about more than Baden Nord. It's about the future of the offshore and the financial and economic stability of the province. Thirdly, the minister keeps saying... It's in the hands of the minister. I'm talking about Minister O'Regan saying continuously that it's in the hands of the minister, the final decision. Now, we know that it's in the hands of the prime minister and the cabinet. It's not one person. To re- let the responsibility be where it is, and that is with the federal cabinet. Third, fourthly, a negative decision on Betador will have a really severe impact, in particular on not only on people here in the province, but also on towns and cities right across the province. And I've yet to hear, for example, from the city of St. John's or the city of Mount Pearl. Did hear from the city of uh, CBS, and uh, they've taken a stand on it. But I really would like the Northeast Avalon mayors to call a press conference and come out, be heard, come out in favor of the project. And but the, didn't, I, didn't I read a story where uh, Mayor Breen did exactly that? 
I think there was a letter signed, but uh, that's not enough. You need to you need to do something more forceful. And I'm talking not only about Mayor Breen, but uh, Mayor Aker. I mean, can can you only imagine what would happen if we lost the project and lost the the offshore, the impact that that would have on Donovan's and the impact that would have on the Mount Pearl budget or the Paradise budget, same thing, City of St. John's, same thing. Sure, but so, I, I mean, mean they, they those optics... Are people who are in a position of influence and a position of power, and I don't know how they feel about the project, so... We should know. They should come out, and, and I think they should support the project. Okay, just a couple of things, though, Doc. So, number one, the decision's made. I mean, we all know that. You think? Yeah, that's done deal. That decision has been made, just hasn't been released. For whatever reason, I have no earthly idea. Because, I mean, the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada has spoken to it, my God, a year ago. So yeah. there's nothing left to glean. There's nothing left to assess. There's nothing left to investigate. So the decision Great. must be made at this point. Um, and, and what do we actually get? get from the the grandstanding and the the shout until you're red in the face and all that sort of optics as opposed to you say they have positions of power do you think municipal mayors on the northeast avalon are in any position of power when it comes to the federal government and a decision like this i think they have an influence i mean right now do you think that the Sierra Club would have an influence by saying that if you're in favour of this project, you're in favour of death and destruction? The Sierra Club of Canada is a different beast as a yeah, national I mean, entity than the mayor of CBS. last week. Yeah, okay, yeah. anyway. Right, I mean, come on. You know, there's no need for that kind of hyperbole anyhow. But I, I do think that mayors across the province do have an influence. I think if MNL and the Nordic Avalon mayors came out and, and had a press conference or made a statement, surely, God, in our country, somebody would listen to those mayors. Now, if you think the decision is already made, then it's made, but I'd still like to hear how these people feel. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know if you heard or read the uh, the greenhouse gas emissions report like I did, but when they have acknowledged, and Minister of Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson, yesterday was forced to, yeah. you know, defend the fact that Canada's going to increase oil production in the short term and then acknowledge the fact that fossil fuels will still be utilized over the next number of decades. But then the distinct references to low carbon emissions and companies who are willing to put all all the emission mitigation plans in place, just like Equinor has planned and has put on paper regarding the uh, Flemish Pass and Bay de Nord, that to me is, I think this is just the report that proceeds, I, maybe I'm wrong, or maybe I'm out to lunch, maybe I shouldn't be guessing, but that reads a lot like Bay de Nord is a preferred oil and gas project. I agree with you there. I mean, that it, it looks like, please God, we're going that way. But, you know, Petty, the whole issue of, of climate change, and I mean, we, we all know climate change is coming, and it's not the fact that it's coming. I think you it's would agree. It's, it's how it comes, and how it's handled, and how it's implemented, uh, and I think it should be implemented in an evolutionary way. But our federal government right now, uh, really, their main method is economic force. They're trying to force people to buy this electric car, force people to get rid of this furnace, force people to pay more to heat their homes, force people to pay more at the pump. Do, do people not realize that just that right now fossil fuel is about more than 
gas and oil. It's almost about everything that we have in our homes, everything that we have on our backs. I mean, oil touches everything. And sure it does, but I mean, the whole concept of force, what I find curious about this whole thing, this has not become about a policy discover, uh, dis- discussions any further. This is straight up politics. Because if, like for instance, I don't need, want to label you with one color or a stripe or another because that's not the purpose of the conversation. Right. But forever and a day, folks who were on the conservative side of the political spectrum were all about mar- market capitalism, price pressure sensitivities, and the market will decide how people go and spend their money. If and when the same application of uh, political and financial or economic ideologies apply to climate change, it goes by the wayside. I just really don't get what's going on here. You know, and someone gets mad at me if I ever mention Stephen Harper, but I couldn't care less about that. Conservatives forever and a day talked about price point, market pressures, price on pollution. But now, since the liberals introduced it, they're not about it any longer, when in fact, I just don't know what happened here. If the market will dictate, then this is not the government forcing to do something. This is actually... In, everyone's collective best interest. It just really simply is. Even when we talk about retrofitting uh, the buildings and uh, other pieces of infrastructure in the country, a job is a job is a job. I don't think anyone cares if they're working on the rig or they're working in a skyscraper in Toronto to retrofit it for more cleaner, cheaper, alternative forms of uh, energy versus an oil boiler down in the, in the basement. So anyway, I'll let you have the last word, Dr. Yeah, before I, I go. Patty, I, I mean, I, I think uh, the best way to do what needs to be done is energy expansion. As as we develop more and more newer forms of energy that are affordable by people right across this country, then the old forms of energy like uh, like fossil fuels will, from an evolutionary perspective, will disappear. That's the way coal went. I mean, we all burnt coal back in the 1950s and in the 60s, cheap electricity came on and people started to turn away from coal and that that's the way this should flow. It, and it should flow. You never succeed in anything by force. Okay. Never. This, but of course, we're talking about a plan that is you know, this has been kicked around forever. We've all heard of these targets as far back as Kyoto Protocols, which we never hit. Even the federal liberals in their most recent uh, plans for curbing emissions, we never hit the targets. So I don't know how forced anybody has been to do any of these things. I mean, even when the government offers a subsidy to change how you heat your home, a subsidy to buy an electric vehicle, it feels like the most gentle force I've ever heard of if they're willing to pay you. Well, but anyway, the only thing I'll say I gotta about go. that is, uh, again, uh, th- there has to be a plan, and there's no plan one way or the other. I mean, y- if you're going to turn people away from one type of fuel, you have to have easy access to the other type of fuel. It's okay to say by 2035, we're not, nobody can buy, uh, everybody will have to have electric cars. Well, that's going to depend on the price of the electric car and the charging stations and all of that infrastructure has to be put in place. That's actually part of it as well, right? $400 million for 50,000 additional charging stations. Uh, The price point, like you well know, I'm not telling you something you don't know, is when Mass manufacturing becomes the, the reality here, and all the major manufacturers on the face of the earth are developing and building electric vehicles. So before long, they are reading the writing on the wall. They're moving towards building more and more of them, and as they build more and more of them and the technology improves, price points will come back, right? I mean, we're not talking about cheap internal combustion engine rigs either, right? You go up on the on the lot and try to buy uh, a well-decked-out uh, half-ton truck, sure, $70,000, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, and it costs more to drive it. It does. Anyway, Doc, <laughs> 
enjoyed the chat. Uh, yeah, I finished by saying this. Every Quickly. time I pull up to the pump and I look at the buddy next to me with a big truck and I say to myself, thank God I haven't got your truck. And maybe the person on the other side is saying, my God, I might look at an electric vehicle. <laughs> yes, uh, and I would too. Again, that's part of what I think is the flow, the evolu- evolutionary flow of what's going to happen over time. But uh, you can't force people to do things like that. You have to make it happen. Appreciate the call, Doc. All the best. Thanks, Fatty. You too. All right. Bye. bye. Will I get anything? Or Okay. So for those in the queue, we appreciate your patience, but we are going to discuss the Community Food Support Fund with the Minister of Children, Seniors, and Social Development, uh, John Abbott, and Food First NL CEO Josh Mee right after the break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. With a one-time injection of $250,000 in investment by the provincial government, with Food First NL has established the Community Food Program Support Fund. Joining us on the line to discuss the program and what what's the intentions are is the Minister of Children, Seniors and Social Development, John Abbott, and Food First NL CEO, Josh Mee. Good morning, gentlemen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's John, and great to hear your voice. Happy to have you on the program. We've been talking about the price of food and how it's hit everybody, but for the most vulnerable in our communities, the cost of food has become completely unmanageable. What's the thought behind this program, Minister? Well, Patty, the, yes, as the cost of living has increased and in many of the factors certainly beyond the control of, uh, of the provincial government, but that being said, uh, with the Minister of Finance and myself and the Minister of Environment and Climate Change making an announcement two weeks ago with our five-point action plan, we were also monitoring what else we could be doing uh, to support the people in the community that were struggling with getting access to food, and uh, we responded to, to that need uh, and working with uh, Food First NL, and I certainly appreciate uh, Josh and his team uh, coming to uh, to work with us in getting more money out in the community to help people uh, truly in need at this point in time. Uh, Josh, welcome to the show. How's the program going to work? So it's a pretty simple, quick turnaround grant fund. So food programs uh, can apply online, uh, and we have up to $4,000 set aside for uh, organizations on the island, uh, twice that for organizations in Labrador, uh, and then they can use that for whatever they need. So there's a pretty wide range of things. You can use it to buy food if that's your squeeze. You can also use it for, for labor costs. Uh, there are also food programs that do wild food access. So you can use it for ammo and gas if that's uh, part of what your program is up to, uh, or delivery costs, those kind of things. So pretty much anything that you need to do to, to close a little bit of the gap that food programs are feeling um, from these cost of living increases. And, and we know that, that they're feeling it just like they're their clients are and it's open pretty widely so it can be nonprofits, religious groups town councils indigenous governments whoever is doing food-based work uh, we should be able to move this out pretty fast how quick is the money going to flow applications are open for two weeks and it'll be pretty immediate after that uh we've done a couple of rounds of this fund before um to cope with pandemic related problems which means we actually have eft relationships and all the kind of uh set up with most food programs in the province already done uh, and it's pretty quick to do the others so uh we should have it out the door uh pretty quick after the applications come through this is a good thing but as the even the news really says it's a one-time investment of two hundred fifty thousand dollars. what 
in addition to this is in the works, Minister Abbott, because if you read and hear from the experts in the field talking about food shortages, even the yield in the grains world in this country was uh, depleted by some 30% last year. The breadbasket of Europe is under is in crisis and turmoil. Pro- food shortages may indeed continue into the future. Food prices don't look like they're coming back to earth anytime soon. What are long-term plans? Because food insecurity is a real catch-all, but it, it hits different segments of society differently. But when we're talking about social determinants of health and these continued soaring costs, what are long-term plans? Well, Petty, I think you're, uh, you know, you've uh, asked or definitely the right question here. Uh, we know as a government and as a province, we have to look at how we can get more uh, funds in the hands of people that with, with now having low incomes. So we're looking at our income support pro- program and see how we can improve on that. We are out there now looking at the minimum wage, and there's a committee in place looking at that. Uh, my department has responsibility for what was the poverty reduction strategy. What we want to do there is look at how we look at it in a more comprehensive way in context of a social and economic well-being plan, so issues of prevention, so people don't fall into the welfare trap uh, that they can get the food they need, they have the income they need. So we're working with youth to make sure we can uh, uh, keep them in in the education system or the in the into the work world. And uh, we're also looking at the larger concept of uh, basic income. Uh, we there's an all-party committee that will be put in place uh, in, a, in a short while. At the same time, uh, the Health Court NL has identified that as a key concept to address the uh, and contribute to the social determinants of health, i.e. more income in the hands of low income will help address many of these issues. Now, that's going to take time. So while we're working through the the policy pieces here, uh, we know we have to respond in short-term measures, such as we did uh, two weeks ago, as we're doing today, and we'll, if we need to in the in the next while, uh, until we have the other factors and, and policies in place, uh, that's uh, what we're uh, committed to doing. Josh, I'd like to get you to elaborate on this, because it's not only a cost issue, it's an accessibility issue, as you point out in this particular fund, with the fact that there's uh, up to $4,000 on the island, but $8,000 in Labrador. So elaborate on what the minister's saying and talk about accessibility on top of cost. Yeah, so we know that obviously um, cost is the biggest factor, but you can have all the money in the world. But if you are living, for example, and don't have access to a vehicle and don't live anywhere near a store, that's not that much help to you. So there, there are some big other pieces here. And we've actually, I will say seen the infrastructure get better over COVID, right? And because of the pandemic, lots of food programs started up things like delivery services and ways of kind of closing that gap in, uh, in access. The other side of that, though, is that you close that access gap and that brings more people out because we know that the vast majority of people who are eligible for support with food never knock on the door of a food program for lots of reasons. More of them are these days, which is which I'm glad to see but it's making us realize just that that the the food program system cannot possibly meet the need that's out there and and i think that's why it is good to hear uh the minister talk so concretely about uh about the income solutions because I, I totally agree. If if all we do is put sort of one-time boosts into into this system, we'll never get anywhere. But we don't want people to to fall through these gaps while the while these longer-term changes are, are happening. And and the income uh, one is a big piece, but also obviously I think there's a lot of conversation happening about transportation, which is which is a really important one. And and hopefully we come out the other side of this with a little bit more. 
uh, infrastructure, particularly for folks outside of outside of the city, but even in town, for for people to get to the food or for the food to get to them. Uh, Josh, I'll stick with you, and then I'll get the minister to react to this one as well. Is how important is it for so many different organizations to be able to avail of these funds, or is it more important to have a, a focused concentration on individuals versus food banks and indigenous communities and uh, municipalities and all the other organizations that are eligible for these funds? What, what should be the balance? How do you focus in on dealing with root cause issues? Is it the individual, or is it these organizations such as yours and other food banks, Jody Williams I mentioned off the top of the show? How do you strike that balance so access and dealing with root causes gets dealt with? Yeah, that's a good question. I think some of the things that happened a few weeks ago in terms of the cost of living um, measures are a good model to follow in that they were universal, right? You know, you, if you are a tax filer, and hope, and that's one thing, but as long as you're filing taxes or enrolled in income support, you've got that support. And, and I think that's where that's where the big money and the big resources need to go is into into cash transfers to people on to people who need it that always should be the bigger part of relieving these issues but right now we are we're left with a system where for a lot of people they're the only place that they can go for support are these charitable programs and i don't love that uh and that system needs to change but as long as that system is there uh i think it is important to be able to boost some of those on the ground resources and that's i think especially true for some of the smaller programs which uh are really depending on volunteer labor and community donations and both of those are in in really short supply and that's like a a problem with the system that it's fragile in that way Uh, but you know that bridging boost does i think matter uh as long as uh, it's being met with more resources as it is right now and should i hope to see it continue with more resources on the cash transfer side because eventually you want people to not go to food banks at all that's the goal right minister your thoughts because we have a splintered world for access out there and many organizations sort of in essence fighting against each other for the same bit of funding so how do we streamline this uh, you know as pick up where josh left off because when you have one food bank or one community organization or one not-for-profit filling out applications for the same pot of money as their, their counterpart at another organization at the same time it seems like the structure is well-intentioned but deeply flawed well, Patty, the, uh, sort of, I concur with many of the points sir, that uh, Josh made. Uh, but if you look at the, the province as a whole, of course, the communities are small and large, and are, you know we're spread out over a very large geography. So we're going to have a lot of uh, agencies involved, whether it's in this case food or transportation and what have you, or housing as a, as another example. So one of the things I'm looking at here as a as a minister in the department is again, how do we streamline some of that? And we'll be looking at that when we review funding for community agencies on a, on a go-forward basis. But the need is there, so we, we got to make sure we address that. So we have school lunch programs, and we have uh, Kids Eat Smart and all of that, so we're funding those, which are long-standing programs, which we'll probably have for, for, for probably forever. Because I was down at uh, uh, Bishop Field Elementary earlier this week to help uh, with the, the lunch program there, uh, their breakfast program, excuse me, because their kids, no matter what the socioeconomic status of the family, are coming to the school hungry. Uh, uh, and or throughout the day, so the the program is there to support them. So we 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 really are focused on where the p- folks are, 
what supports we can provide them as a, uh, while we look at some of these uh, larger larger structural issues that we certainly have to focus on and get right uh, sooner than later. And I'm optimistic we will get there. The province uh, is small enough that we should be able to address this. The community is very supportive. We've got a good working relationship between the, the uh, provincial government and pretty well all the agencies. So now it's incumbent on us to, to get this right for obviously for, uh, for future generations. I appreciate you, both you gentlemen making time for the show, but just the fact that we need this fund and we need people like Josh Smee, we need Food First and Ellen, Kids Eat Smart and School Lunch Program and Food Banks, really speaks to where we're letting the country down. And, you know, we're trying to work towards structural repairs to ensure that we deal with root causes, but imagine needing to go to school and have a bite to eat. It really is a startling thing to say out loud in modern-day Canada. Any final thoughts from either of you before we go? Well, go ahead, Josh. I think I'd just say that I, I totally agree. It's uh, it's like a morally awful thing that that's where we are. And I, I hope that people realize that uh, food insecurity is not something that's confined to any one group of people. Uh, we all know folks who are in this position. Uh, and I, I think my ask here is always whenever you go out and you donate uh, to a food program, also, take a moment and send an email to, to the minister here or to someone else in, in power to say, what are you doing to change this so that these programs aren't needed? Because we need political and, and active pressure just as much as, as money in the system right now. Appreciate your time, fellas. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Patty. Take care. Yeah. Ask Minister John Abbott. He's the minister responsible for children, seniors, and social development. In addition to the status of persons with disabilities, the community sector, and Newfoundland Labrador housing. And, of course, Josh Mee. He's the CEO at Food First NL. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. All right. C-C-C-E-L-L-L-T-I-I-I-I-C-S. You know the deal. Let's go. Line number five. Good morning, Stan Cook. You're on the air. <laughs> well done, brother. That was good. Good morning, sir. <laughs> Welcome to the show. So, Stan, the, uh, you and I are both uh, graduates of Brother Rice High School, and yeah. here comes a reunion. Tells the tale just how old we are. Well, we're, we're older than we we want to admit, I think, and, and, and this is really how all this came about. I was... Uh, Patty, I was over at Dad's place back in January for his birthday with all the kids, and we were sitting around telling stories. And, of course, as you know, Dad taught at Brother Rice for a long time, and then he was actually part of the first graduating class. And then, of course, we graduated around 25 years later or close to it, so we were kicking around these ideas, and it just hit me, you know, we're getting old. And you know, there's always a good time to uh, get together with old friends and talk about the old times and have a few laughs. And that's how this came about. So really, it's it's really just an idea that said, hey, there's a lot of fellas out there. And they, and they are mostly fellas. For the first 25 years, it was only boys that went to school after that. Uh, for the next 10 or 15 years, there was a co-education with, with uh, not just single sex, with girls and boys. So there is obviously... And about, I think from 88 on, uh, girls attended Brother Rice High School as well. So it's, uh, it's a lot of alumni out there that I think want to get together and have a chat and have a laugh and listen to some good stories and reminisce. So that's really where this came from. And the stories are plentiful and well-exaggerated at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a few famous uh, alumni out there, of course, and sad to say you, you might be getting in that category who can sit around and tell a few stories about the good old days and whether it was uh, academics or athletics. So, you know, basically we're, we're just trying to invite everyone to come. I know it's a come home year. I, I know there's other things going on, but we timed it so it would be just after the regatta. So if people are, are thinking about coming home, 
the Friday right after August 5th that we can go down to the Legion, everyone can sit around, have a beverage, have a chat, have a few hors d'oeuvres, talk about the good old times, and, you know, basically just be grateful that we can actually attend. I mean, my, my premise is life is short. If you can attend these things, do it. So that's really where this came from. 100%. So this is for everybody who graduated from Brother Rice? Yeah, for Bull Race High School. So basically from 62 to I think 98 was the last year it was a high school. Yeah. After that, it became a junior high. And I, and I would suggest that the folks that have that attended uh, Brother Rice as a junior high would have a very different experience than uh, many of us that attended as a high school. So this is really just for the high school folks that went through. Roughly speaking, you know, talking to Dad and trying to do some math, I, we figured there's probably about 7,000 of us that kind of graduated. Like In the early 60s and 70s, the classes were bigger than when we went through in the 80s and not as fatty so you know we're just roughly speaking there's about 7,000 folks out there obviously they're not all alive I mean you have fellas in your class I have fellas in my class that are past but we're hoping to reach out and like, anyone that can come and wants to come to you know go to the Facebook site and, and you know buy a ticket and hopefully see you on the 5th of August I would imagine it's the same experience for high school graduates of any high school right around the country it's funny how when you get together with your buddies like some of my best pals are the guys I've been hanging out with since Pi's yeah. 10th but the stories generally don't start with somewhere in the 2000s. The stories that the go-tos when we're sitting around having fun are in the 80s. There's so much high school banter. It just never ceases to amaze me. And that's exactly right, Patty. And I'm in a similar boat. My friends uh, have been my friends since kindergarten all the way through. Obviously, we have lots of new friends, but that's kind of the hardcore bunch of guys you hang with. And you're right. We get together. We tell the same old stories. We laugh our heads off. We talk about our high school years. For us, it was a lot of uh, athletics that kicked around that time and just funny stories about the teachers and the coaches and what happened in the locker rooms and on the court or on the ice and things like that. So I, I think it's, it's the same here as it is anywhere. You get together. You have a few laughs. You, you, you tell good stories. I, I would think, you know, some of the stories have exaggerated. Like any good story, the truth shouldn't get in the way of it. But uh, as time goes on, I think we just kind of, you know, we kick around the, the, the good old days. And it's, it's yeah. fun to get together. And for me, I'm hoping I can see a bunch of people as we can in the 60s and 70s. Like, fellas that are 10 and 20 years old when I was fatty, like, I hope a bunch of those guys show up. Because I know when I was going through, a few of those fellas were like idols of mine. I remember looking up to different guys who were great athletes and great guys and I'd love to see them now, now that they're in their 60s and 70s and get together and, and have, a, have a conversation with them. Absolutely. And unlike you, you went to St. Pons, a feeder school of Brother Ice. I went to Pius yeah. 10th, and most of my pals from Pius, of course, went to Gonzaga. You know, yeah. other than myself and Skinny and Clarkie yeah. and, yeah. and a few of the yeah. lads. But so yeah. I had the, uh, the best of both worlds on that front with my social circles. Okay, do yeah. I have to do anything to register, or what do you want anyone to do, or just show up? No, no, you can't show up because it's down the Legion. It's a limited group, limited space. So uh, what we did as a, an organizing committee, we put together a, a Facebook page, pretty straightforward. It's called Brother Rice High School Diamond Jubilee Reunion 2022. So Brother Rice High School Diamond Jubilee Reunion 2022 because this is 60 years uh, of, of, since the first Brother Rice first opened. So if you go to that page, you can look at, you know, click on it and, and buy your ticket. Uh, what I, another thing I'm trying to do, Patty, I'm, I'd like for folks to send in to that page if they got pictures of themselves when they were in high school not uh, you know pictures of you know what they're doing now but pictures of them on a hockey team or in the math club or chess or ping pong or basketball or whatever if there's any newspaper articles any old um, class pictures anything from our carry toss or the yearbook if they can send them in because i'd love to i think it'd be a hoot if the night of of august 5th we could show a bunch of those pictures and just have them up on a screen that kind of you know revolving bunch of pictures 
that go through. I think people have a laugh looking like, you know, looking how much hair we used to have and how, how, how skinny we used to be and how, how fit we used to be compared to now. So, you know, if people can flick that onto that, onto that website, uh, on the Facebook page, that'd be great too. I was going to say, it'd be featuring some incredible hairdos. That's for oh. sure. <laughs> Stan, good to have you on the show. Say hello to the family for me. I will, brother. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks man. man. All the best. So Stan Cook, Brother Rice graduate, of course, Brother Rice High School, the best high school. <laughs> Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Helena Wright, say good morning to the executive director at the NL Force Industry Association. That's Bill Dawson. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today, sir. How are you? Good. I got to take exception, though. I don't think Rice was the best high school. I got to go with Gonzaga, buddy. <laughs> I, I said it on purpose because I was looking and for the you, pushback. And, you, and, you, and the fly uh, laid on the water, and I came up for it. I'm glad you did. I lived right across the street from Gonzaga, but I went to Brother Rice to play on a decent hockey team. Oh, that's because uh, Gonzaga had beaten Rice so many times before, I guess. <laughs> they, they needed to get the recruits. Three of my siblings went to Gonzaga. Lisa, Michael, and Jennifer both went there. Andrew went to Holy Heart, and I went to Rice. There you go. Right All right, buddy. All good school. Let's All go. Good school. I just want to chat, Patty, about uh, the announcement last week when they talked about uh, the um, electrification of Memorial University. And, you know, there's other options out there, and I just want to throw a few scenarios by you. I mean, if I told you that the poor sector has a bioenergy fuel that's low carbon, okay, and by supporting it, we create green economy jobs in rural Newfoundland, and that fuel can save you 30 to 50 percent more on average than what you're paying for fossil fuel, because our sawmills have so much of this biomass, right? And we have no market for it. I mean, wouldn't you consider that? Or would you say, no, we're going to go with electricity, even though the cost may be 30% more on average than what we're paying for fossil fuel, because the province has lots of it and has no market for it. But yet both uh, electricity and forestry biomass, which, and biomass again, is clean uh, sawmill residue, Right, are acceptable low-carbon alternatives. Even the government uh, accepts both for displacing of uh, fossil fuels. So, you know, you know, which one would you choose when you're considering, and we're talking about transitioning towards a green economy? Or, Patty, would we say, for redundancy purposes, let's hedge our bet, right? Let's look at maybe a cost-effective combination of both. Because, you know, Derek and Ellen, you talked about there this morning, you fire up on the line, and, and you know, we're plugging in a big extension cord. And, uh, you know, we may see Derek and Ellen again. And, you know, with climate change, you know, the highways may be taken out at some point in time, so there may be some, some issues there. I mean, so, you know, so what do we do? And, as, 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 and I go back to what Doc was talking about this morning. Is this transition, you know, going to be made willfully and sensibly, or is it going to be forcibly made out? I think it's going to be made naturally, to be honest with you. There's Absolutely. going to be global pressures 
brought to bear, even if you're talking about things like trade, these things will organically happen for a variety of, I think, well-intentioned and hopefully well-executed reasons. And just a quick mention of the Labrador Island link with the fire. Apparently, it was just a sensor uh, recognized that there was a fire, but there wasn't, and so it didn't react properly. Yeah. Got shut down. Okay. Just want to no put that out there for clarification. But we're looking, we're looking at a big line going up there. We're looking at glitter. We're looking at lots of, just lots of things. I mean, you, you've always, and again, on redundancy, you need to be looking at, you know, the, the hope for the best, uh, you know, plan for the worst. But, you know, in this particular case, I mean, what we're seeing is that, you know, there was an option to look at other bioenergy, low-carbon alternatives, you know, something that will be cost, um, you know, will, will save the university money, actually, and it just wasn't considered whatsoever. And all we're seeing is that the head was put down, it's electricity, you know, uh, we're going for it, and how do we make electricity beat oil? When forced biomass beats electricity and oil hands down all the time. So I don't think it was an informed decision. You know, okay. I think when we look at, and, and you know, you got to recognize too, Patty, that here we are in forest industry. Fifteen years ago, we lost two and a half paper mills, newsprint mills from our sector, and we've been transitioning. We talk about transitioning; we're living it, right? So we've been transitioning, and when we looked at how we transitioned, we saw this bioeconomy. We knew this is what it is. I mean, we're a renewable green economy sector. How green is it though, Bill? You know, because even when we talk about hydro, for instance, people will call it green energy when I think that's not exactly the term we should apply to it. There's lots of environmental damage that goes into developing hydro. What's the actual clean version of biomass, you know, as it pertains to uh, health outcomes, for instance, whether it be folks that are representing the asthma associations or allergies or how clean are we really talking? You know, I think, Patty, what, you're absolutely right. When you talk about clean, I think I think the term that's used is low carbon. You know, so when we talk about any types of emissions, you have to meet air quality emission controls. And so that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about when we talk about biomass. We're not talking about grandfather's old wood stove. I mean, today the technologies have moved up to the point that, I mean, you know, we've got a smokestack there at uh, Memorial right now. Emitting, uh, you know, uh, the the uh, the exhaust of, of fossil fuel, you know. So you, you're always going to have something, but it's got to meet an air quality. And like I say, the technology is here. The point that I want to, uh, you know, I want to get to, Patty, is we saw this as a great opportunity. I mean, you know, here we are saying, how are we going to create green economy jobs? And we looked at it 15 years ago before, you know, Muskrat Falls was even talked about, we were saying, okay, we have an opportunity to displace fossil fuel. We have a very cost-effective energy source, which is low carbon. We can go out and we can do the university. We can do high schools. We can do all those there, and we can actually create a market, a, a, a new segment within our sector to help us grow, because if you're going to displace those those truckers who are, are trucking the fossil fuel, well, at least we can move them over to, you know, our biomass. You know, you want to you be able to transition properly. When Muskrat Falls was put in place, 850 megawatts is what we're basically looking at for Muskrat Falls. 500 was supposed to go on the line over, over to the mainland, and 350 was to replace Holyrood. And Holyrood Dam wasn't heating the university. It wasn't heating the schools, and that's what the plan is. But since all that went sideways, 
soul of our plans because we're being told, nope, it's got to be electricity. I mean, we're seeing, it's just everything is towards electricity. We're even seeing, Patty, and I'm sorry to take up all the time, we're seeing that you've got companies like Newfoundland Hydro, Newfoundland Power, these companies are guaranteed rates of return from the pub. Out saying, how do we discount? How do we attract customers away from who would consider solar, who would consider a biomass, who would consider uh, wind? How do we attract them away? And you're attracting those customers away from those companies who are out selling, you know, uh, uh, heating equipment, you know, energy equipment, you know, that are in the private sector. You know, it's, it's, it's unfair competition. I'm the mayor in my community. I'm not allowed, our community is not allowed to compete with other private sectors. But yet here we are as, as private sector competing directly with, uh, with government. And it's wrong, Pat. It's, it's, we're, we're going at this, I believe, in the wrong direction. I don't. We know what the implications are of burning coal. We know what it is for fossil fuels, bunker C, gasoline, diesel, and otherwise. We know what the outcomes are for solar and wind. I'm not so sure how much I know or how much we all know about biomass and the emissions of what they include, nitrous, nitrous oxides and, and otherwise. But a quick question. Are we not already using biomass from lumber in some facilities already in this province? For the most part, uh, we're using it in Cornerbrook. You know, and that's how cost effective it is. We're, we're not using it in many. We right now, for example, the government has gone out and put a tender out for uh, to use biomass. And mind you, now it's not subsidized; it's, it's private sector to go out and bid. And there are some bids going in on a few colleges in North Atlantic. Patty, that's crumbs for us. We need an anchor tenant. We to establish our sector in the biomass. So the answer is no. To, to establish, we need. Anchor tenants. You don't start up a mall with the small stores. You start with the anchor tenant, and that's how you build it. And, and we, and so we saw the university, and we're very disappointed that we weren't even given consideration. Particularly when the university back in 2018, I met with them. They were very interested in this. They saw this win-win-win, you know, a great opportunity. But somehow, no, that got pushed to the side. We've got this issue with uh, with electricity. You know, we've got too much of it. Everything went sideways. Head down, we got to go with electricity. I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think what you're saying is it should evolve. There should be an opportunity. If I gave you that opportunity where you could switch over to a biomass, low carbon, as identified by the province, and you can save 30 to 50 percent, I'd say not only the university, but every other uh, person burning fossil fuel would say, sign me up or, or at least show me how I can take advantage of that. And, and I don't think we're given that opportunity. Appreciate you making time for the show this morning. Bill, thank you. All the best, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bill Dawson, ED at the NL Forestry Industry Association. I admit freely, you know, I think we have well understood, documented uh, what it means to burn coal and bunker C and diesel and gasoline and all the rest. I don't know much about the biomass world and what it means for emissions and how it can be applied in a so-called greener or cleaner application. I really don't know, but that's something I guess I should have a look at considering the fact that it's being promoted, as we just heard from Mr. Dawson, and it's being utilized in certain places in the province already. So maybe more research for me to do this afternoon. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go, line number one. Lindy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How's it going? Uh, doing okay. How you doing? Oh, so far so good. Good. I called and see, to get, see if we get your opinion. Now, and, uh, 
what the advantages are of an electric car in Newfoundland. Right off the bat, uh, cost. Cost of operation. Clear savings. But the, but the cost right now of an electric car is around fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. Well, it depends on what kind of car you're looking for, right? You know, most people will use the cost argument and say, well, boy, it costs $70,000 to get into a Tesla. But you don't have to get into a Tesla. There are much more inexpensive options that are out there in the electric vehicle world. And as I mentioned earlier, every major manufacturer on the face of the earth is building an electric vehicle. So before long, there'd be so many options, and with options comes competition. With competition comes uh, price point pressure. It's going to be cheaper to get into an electric vehicle, and the technology will improve as, as it has over the last few years. There's just I can only speak for myself, because I'm the only one spending my money, is I'm pretty sure the next vehicle we buy will be electric. Okay, now, yep. here's where, where I, I look at the disadvantages. Okay. I'm driving along, I'm on the highway. You're good for 500, six, five, 600 kilometers before you got to get it recharged. Yep. Is that right? Well, it depends. Now, I'm in the middle of the winter, and I'm out in the middle of uh, Tiradolfa National Park, and next thing I'm in a bloody big snowstorm. Okay. Yeah. And I can't move. Now, what, what, where am I going now? Why, how, why are you unable to move? I'm not understanding the scenario. Because I'm going to run out of electricity. If I got, to, if I'm, if I'm, I'm stuck there now. What I'm saying, I'm stuck there. I can't get out of it. So I, but why are you stuck? I got, I, I got to have heat or freeze it. Yeah. You know, so uh, what? What am I? How am I going to survive? Why, why wouldn't car? you? Why wouldn't you have stopped and charged your car just like you would have stopped and put gas in the tank? Where am I going to charge it? Well, there's 14 about every 150 kilometers across the Trans Canada Highway. Yeah. Okay. But they're all buried up the snowbank, same as the fire hydrants to try and get somebody shoveled out. Well, the same way that we plow out the gas station, we'll plow out the charging stations. I see. I well, see. why wouldn't we? I and mean, that only makes sense, right? Yeah, I'm going down. I'm going down the Northern Peninsula. Now, you tell me somebody's going to plow plow out the, the charging stations? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, we plow out everything else. I don't know what stops us from plowing out uh, a mailbox or a fire hydrant or a charging station or a gas station or a convenience store or a restaurant. Well, I mean, what, I think it's just put I'm, the plow down. What I'm saying is, I got to get to a charging station. I can't put a, put the charging station in the trunk of the car like I can't a, a gallon of gas or two gallons of gas. Yeah. No worries. But it might not be for everyone. Like, for instance, if we, we have, a, myself and my wife, we both have a vehicle. If one of them is more conducive to long-distance travel, of which we do very little anyway, versus a car or a vehicle that does nothing but hop around town, go to work, go to the shop, go up to Nance, whatever the case may be, it might be an excellent option. If some people do not uh, think that electric's for them, then... Okay, what can I tell you? But at some point, whether it be the infrastructure required, whether it be the improvement and the move towards solid-state batteries and the distance that they can travel, and, you know, uh, Tom says on Twitter here, a Tesla can last 60 hours with just the heat on, much longer than any internal combustion engine. That's an interesting point. So when things advance and they become more inexpensive and more charging stations and more of these types of cars on the road, things will just change naturally. 
They just will, right? You know, we improved the technology for the internal combustion engine. We improved the technology to have a, a diesel transport trucks run cleaner. So these things just happen over time. I, is everything in place today for every single person in every part of the province to be able to drive an electric vehicle? No, it's not. But will it be in the future? Very likely. I mean, even just the announcement yesterday. Fit, fa, uh, pardon me, 50,000 additional charging stations will be put in place almost immediately. So that gives me reason to believe that as frequent as we drive past the gas station, it'll become very much the same way with the electric vehicle charging station. Okay, so is that why Mr. Trudeau just whacked another 12 cents on, on, on oil? Yeah, that's what it's all about. Carbon tax is absolutely in an effort to change people's behavior, just like every other tax that we apply to things like tobacco and alcohol, the, what they call the sin tax. Yeah, the issue with the price point is that you immediately will see some people change their behaviors. Now, there'd be an argument to be made that the carbon tax doesn't even go far enough in some people's minds because there's a rebate. Why would I change my behavior if I know I got a rebate coming? Very much unlike this province where we simply pay it at the pumps. So, yeah. Yeah, because uh, low-income seniors got no rebate. If I'm getting, if I go out and get uh, three hundred dollars worth of oil, which is approximately, uh, I don't even know if it's a quarter of a tank. It might be. And they turned around and they said, "Well, all right, we're giving you, we're going to give you ten percent on this GST HST uh, uh, rebate, which is right now is about fifty bucks." So I get three hundred dollars worth of oil. On three hundred three hundred dollars worth of oil, I pay. Forty-five dollars in, in in income tax or in pay in, uh, in prior sure sales tax. There shouldn't be HST and home heating fuels. Uh, a couple of things, and these are important points made by some of the listeners. David says to remind you and me. The vast majority of electric vehicles in the future will be plug-in hybrids. So you will have a small internal combustion engine in case. So you'll have the ability to operate on both. But the the vehicle will rely primarily on the electric vehicle component, the battery component of it. So, and then, you know, Keith says he worries about electric vehicles in Labrador with extreme cold and the lack of chargers and the big land. Today, that's a legitimate worry. The difference between uh, operating distance in the summer versus winter months is real. It's absolutely real. But will we see, as opposed to liquid polymer batteries or lithium-ion batteries, the move to these solid-state batteries with solid electrodes dealing with flammability, dealing with uh, uh, reliability, dealing with endurance? Things will change. I mean, just think about it. I made this analogy with someone the other days. It used to be, like the building I work in, uh, it would only be able to house one computer because of the massive and before technology improved. Now I have a computer in my hand. In my phone. So the way the current technology is in electric vehicles, I would imagine in the next tech 10 years, it will be so dramatically improved because the appetite will be there. The big companies that rely on profitability from selling these things, they're working towards making theirs the best. They want the Ford F-150 electric to be better than the Chevy half-ton, right? So that competition means the drive in improving technology is absolutely coming i mean they're already at it and i i would imagine by the time i'm ready to buy an electric vehicle they're going to be better more reliable than the ones that are on the lot today okay so as far as uh, uh, oil 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 or gas whatever uh, vehicles so they're not going to make any improvements in in the emissions from from uh, from vehicles from uh, oil whatever gas gas vehicles they're not going to make any improvements in that 
Well, I think over the, the over the next ten years, or like he says, the fifty years, or whatever, that there won't be any improvements in in those car, those vehicles. There what has been all, some. What about all the ships sailing the oceans and all the planes flying in the air? They're all going to be electric. No, but no and one you're said. You're going to have a jet plane filled up with batteries. But how is that an argument against my personal electric vehicle? I mean, for starters, the big ships on the ocean run on a marine fuel. The jets in the air run on jet aviation fuel. They were even starting to make some of that fuel out of biofuels. So everything is changing. It, it, it just is. And the control of emissions in an internal combustion engine is well understood. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the state of California and the catalytic converter to try to deal with acid rain, those improvements have happened over time. But I think we might be at the end of the road for efficiency in internal combustion engines. If we weren't, every company would be out there touting that number one first. They'll talk about the features and benefits. They'll talk about the, uh, the mileage that you can get. They don't talk about the emissions because I think we might be at the end of that road. How clean can you burn gas? You know, it's either the product becomes cleaner because the control in the vehicle is what it is, as far as I can tell. You know? Okay. Anyway, last, last comment to you last before question. I go. One last question. Sure. Well, what replaces all those jobs? What jobs? The jobs in the oil industry. The, the gas stations. The, 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 the service on your vehicle. The... Uh, well, that's enough for, for now. That's, that's two things anyway. What well, replaces all those jobs? What replaced the jobs for people that were down getting black lung in a coal mine? Uh, what replaced those jobs? Yeah. What replaced the job of the blacksmith and the cobbler and, you know, jobs that were once uh, very much part of the environment landscape or the employment landscape? You know? I don't know. For instance, if someone gets a job uh, as a part of the program to retrofit buildings, do you think that person really cares that they aren't swinging a hammer on the oil field versus being in a skyscraper doing some different kind of work with the same types of skills and the paycheck will be coming every second Friday? You know? Yeah, when the world the changes, we either change with it or we chase our tail. The guy that's down in the coal mine, the guy that's down in the coal mine mining coal. Yeah. Is not going to get a job as a, a on a computer in a, in a skyscraper. No, but he might get a job at the mine where they're uh, harvesting lithium and cobalt or uranium or whatever. He might. Well, why working on those with those types of skills? Again, do you think someone who's in the industry cares if they're going into the mine to pull out iron ore versus cobalt? I wouldn't imagine. No, I wouldn't imagine either far as that goes. But so, I can't see where they're going to replace all the jobs that are, are, are out there in the oil industry. I can't see it. The oil industry nationally is 5% of GDP. Okay. So, consequently... That's 5% that's, that's, uh, of gross domestic... Gross domestic that's right. Now, it's a, it's a different issue well, now. I'm talking about the people. I'm talking about the people working, like in refineries. All this stuff. Where, where, where are, how are all those jobs going to be replaced? Beyond me. Okay. So, if we're building different things, why wouldn't we still need people to build the different things? As opposed to refining a uh, oil into gasoline or propane or what have you, why wouldn't that some of these people be involved in 
building batteries and dealing with batteries in their afterlife and dealing with building what is still going to be required the the carcass of the vehicle that all of a sudden doesn't have an internal combustion engine it has a battery or it's powered by hydrogen or whatever the case may be we're still going to need people to do some things will automation see some jobs lost 100 percent absolutely right we've seen it happen over the years with the introduction of the assembly line modern day with the way that uh, large-scale operations from a fish plant to a pickup truck manufacturing facility to a self-driving transport trailer truck which are now soon going to be part and parcel of our world right to everything that's become robotic to go to shoppers drug bar to go to a self-checkout versus uh, speak with the young lady or young man who's ringing through your goods these things are changing right in front of our face my only point on this and i'm not pushing electric people do exactly what they see fit with their own money my point on all of this stuff is we either embrace and be part of change get out in front of change or be left behind that's well, what we've that. always done in this world or certainly in this province things happen and before we react to prepare and join it we end up chasing our tail and it's really held us back time and time again on almost every issue you can point to uh, i really do have to go lindy last comment from you <laughs> no, that's fine buddy that's good for today appreciate your time okay all right lindy. later all right bye-bye right, let's take a break when we go back crab don't go away your VOCM 2022 ECMA nominee for Media Outlet of the Year. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Conway, you're on the air. Yes. Good morning. Good morning to you. Honing uh, on the, the debate, I guess, we're having over our crab and the fact that uh, I guess the companies don't want to pay us no more than they paid us last year. And I guess in saying that is the fact that fuel prices has went to the roof. Um, just for, for my enterprise here now, the my insurance on my boat went up 24% this year. Why? I don't know. And for the cost of just getting up the power for my safety, because when you're in a bigger fleet, well, we got more safety regulations than the smaller fleet, okay? Then, you know, you got up to 3911, and you got from 40 foot over. From 40 foot over, we have more safety regulations. My uh, my boat, my lifeboat, cost me just about $500 extra this year to get it recertified. My emergency suits cost me more to get certified. And it's just everything has gone up. Like you, you've mentioned there this morning on your radio, the price of food has went up. I believe you said 40%? Since the pandemic like, began, yeah. Yes. So when we look across, for me, look across the Gulf, I mean, I'm in the Gulf. I'm not over on the other side of Newfoundland fishing or the South Coast. But... When you look just across the way and you're getting upwards of $12 a pound for crab and they're offering us what the same as last year at uh, seven sixty a pound is... Just, just one second though, uh, uh, Conway. So 
What does the increased cost of insurance and emergency suits and fuel have to do with the price of crab that the processors are willing to offer? Because the price is what the market can bear. has nothing to do with what your operational costs are as a harvester, right? Well, okay, then how come the crab is uh, is $12 a pound in Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or Cape Breton? Well, not for me to say, but here's what the processors will say, and I'll get you to react to it. They'll say it's uh, there's a couple of different factors that play in here. Is that the size and the value of the crab that is caught uh, outside of the, for the Cape Breton harvesters, number one. They'll also say that they have additional costs as processors here because they're actually paying your workers' compensation uh, assessment fees. They'll also say that they take on the payroll on behalf of the fish harvester enterprises, which has a clerical a cost associated with it as well. So those are the three keys that they point to as to why there's a difference in price. Your thoughts? Okay, then. <clears throat> Everything that I said in Cornerbrook the other day wasn't printed. I did bring up the fact that the harvester or the, the buyers do pay for our, so much on our EI and so much on our uh, 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 workers' camp and all that. I did bring that up up there. I did say it okay. in my speech, okay? But that wasn't printed. But I didn't get out and call anybody names, and I didn't get, uh, get up and, uh, and say that our crab was, what was the word he used? Garbage? But our crab's not garbage. We got, the, we got cool water crab, cool water crab. Our crab is full and we have one of the best uh, 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 non-polluted waters in the world. We have top-of-the-line premium product. Uh, who now, called the garbage? We, I'm not sure where that comment came from. Well, that's came. what I read on, on, on the, the dual face crack this morning. Uh, who said it, though? Like, uh, I don't know. I think it was, uh, oh, my, I can't remember his name now, whatever his name is there. I think it was Derek Butler, he said, said that. But I'm not right sure. But the word was there, okay? I haven't heard him say it. I had him on this program. Uh, today's Wednesday. Yeah, uh, he was on on Monday. He certainly made no reference to the quality of crab here being garbage or anything of the less. So I haven't heard anybody say anything like that. And if anyone has ever eaten any crabs, no crab comes out of our water. It's delicious. So I don't know where garbage comes in there. Just like I said, that's just the word that was that was in print on Facebook. You know, you can't believe everything everybody says on Facebook <laughs> either. I mean, for God's sakes. <laughs> Fair enough. But, you know, the, the cost of everything has gone up. And we're not asking for, for the world. But, you know, if, I mean, if they're paying $12 over there, I mean, $4.40 is a big drop for, for our crab. I mean, it's all going to the same market. When, when you goes down and buys crab at Sobeys or, or, or Dominion or Costco or any results, it don't say Newfoundland crab. It's says Atlantic crab. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's all going to the same market, and everybody is paying the same thing for it. I mean, you can diddy-dollar around on whatever you want. I mean, we're all, only thing we're asking for is a fair price to keep our boats running and fair market value. And I understand, yes, we're on an island, but the Magdalene Islands is on an island too. And it's the same distance to ship their crab to the mainland it's what it is for us. Ship our crab to me. Yeah, we'll have, we'd have a different transportation uh, 
issue in this province, say, versus New Brunswick, just to pluck a province in the land of Canada out of my mind. Uh, anyway, appreciate the time. Conway, anything quick before I go? Well, I just want, you know, we just want a fair market value. And, and 760 is not a fair market value when you're, you're, we're getting, they're offering, I should say, Four dollars and forty cents less. Yeah, but I know you, that you don't want to acknowledge the different cost re- uh, realities for processors here. I get it. If I was a uh, harvester, I don't I'd want to acknowledge it. It's not that I don't acknowledge. I did acknowledge. I did acknowledge that they do pay uh, up to a dollar uh, on our. Uh, so, but then the real difference wouldn't be f- over four dollars, like you're saying. The difference would be much less than that if you factor in the additional costs. Th- that's all. That's the only point that I'm putting forward. But you know, do you think it's a good season ahead at seven sixty if that's what the price ends up being? And I think that decision comes today. So, at seven sixty with an additional thirty percent quota, you got a good season ahead. Well, <laughs> it's not going to be as uh, lucrative as you want it to be. Let's put it that way with everything, like I said. The whole world knows that every bit of groceries has gone up. Every Everything has gone up. And why should we have to sell our fish for the same price we got last year when everything has gone up? Everything. I mean, we need that little bit more, too, because... We just do, and, and, and the consumer is going to pay it. If you got to sell beef in Alberta, you ain't going to say, well, i got to ship it new from land, so I'm going to sell it to you land. The consumer issue, though, is a different conversation, no matter how anybody slices it. If you get 50 cents at the war for your grade A cod, and you walk into a grocery store in St. Petersburg, Florida, to pay eighteen ninety nine a pound for salt fish, obviously the endpoint consumer is a completely different conversation. Entirely different, as, as you rightfully know. Uh, Conway, i got to get to the break. I'm late, but I appreciate the time. Good luck. Be safe out there. Yes, thank you for your time. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, someone wants to talk about the price of fuel and what the issue is with the cost of flights. And Jim Cummings, he took the North River Council to the Supreme Court over the most recent election. We'll hear what Jim has to say after this. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not bad, sir. How about you? Not too bad at all, sir. I was the uh, gentleman that the uh, officer was talking about this morning on open, on uh, the news. Uh, we had a boy uh, election here back in September, uh, September 21st. Uh, uh, my opponent uh, received uh, at the night at the count. We uh, he had 107 votes, and I ended up uh, being elected at 110 votes. Uh, two days after the was a recount on a recount on which uh, ended up my opponents ended up with uh, 10 more votes more than me okay at, uh, we had uh, roughly 312 voters here i took it to harbor grace court in harbor grace and uh, the, the judges decided that you know there was some allocations going on anyway we had the allocations i went to supreme court with us and uh, it, uh, between the judge and uh, what he called, it was thrown out. Thrown out to the fact that uh, I couldn't prove that somebody had their hand in their hand. I'd never seen nobody with their hand in the ballot box. But I got 10 ballots out here that anybody can look at them. There's all different marks under the ballots. And I ran because there was so much skullduggery going on here in North River, I decided I was going to run. 
And I mean, there's people around here, they wanted me to run. Yes, they said run, because you're not afraid to speak up. And this is the reason why I ran, Patty. But I mean, it cost me $18,000 to go to Supreme Court, but I'm not worried about that. The fact is, I want to let the people in North River know that in my heart and soul, there was some something went wrong. There's no way that anybody can pick up 10 votes on a recount from 312 voters. And the night of the election, every vote was called out one by one. And I can't see anybody making a mistake by 10 people, by 10 people for the same person. So... So the ballots that were, the 10 that you're talking about, were spoiled and shouldn't be counted, or there was 10 additional ballots no, that no, were... No, they were spoiled. Happened? There was a, a lot of uh, different takes on them. Same thing as that uh, somebody else, you know, I couldn't prove that somebody tampered with them. But in my heart and soul, all you got to do is look at the ballots. There's different marks. Different what what marks kind of marks, though? Like, did someone draw a happy face on it, or...? Oh, no, there's a, lot of, there's a lot more than happy faces. No, just give me an idea, because I haven't seen the ballot. So we'll have the candidates, and there'll be a box at the end. You strike an X in the middle. That would be a mark. So what kind of marks are we talking about? Well, they could be Xs, uh, a straight mark, or this or that, the other thing. I, I wouldn't mind even sending you in the 10 votes that... I still got a copy of the votes that, that you know, we had. Well, take a picture of one and send me an email with the picture in it. I'd be happy to have a look at what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, and, you know, out here, that's like, out here, Patty, we can't, we can't get a thing done from municipal affairs. Every time we call municipal affairs to come out and do see what was going on, there's a lot of stuff going on here in North River, Patty, that people don't know. And this is the reason why the people in North River elected me, because they know that I got a big tongue. And I speak to whatever I see is going on. There's a lot of stuff going on out there now. We've been this last two, a month or so trying to get municipal affairs to come out. They won't budge out their office. They won't get up off the, the chair. To have a look at what? Well, give us an example. Well, we got uh, Dog Park out here. Yeah. Uh, inland Waters is after shutting them down. We've asked uh, municipal affairs to come in and look at that. We've had peace, uh, a permits issued out here for a building. And uh, there was never, the, the, the permit wasn't even uh, signed when it was put to the council, and the council approved it. This is all the uh, stuff that was going on, Patty. So I just wanted to let the people in North River, and, and I guarantee you, I'm not sorry for taking them to the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm, I'm 73 years old, Patty, and I know every little thing in, there, in and out that's going on here in North River, and the people knows it, and that's the reason why they elected me. And that's all I got to say to you this morning, Patty. And, and I appreciate you listening to me. I appreciate the call. Listen, Jim, take a f- picture of it and attach it to an email. Send it to openline.com just so I can put it in my mind's eye what we're talking about. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll take a picture of the ten of them together. Hey. I'll put them on a piece of paper and send them to you. Whatever it takes. Okay, buddy. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You're welcome, Jim. Take good care. Okay, buddy. Buddy. Right. Bye-bye. Uh, line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. It's just me. Yeah, this is you. Can I ask you a question, please? <laughs> sure you can. With all the fuels going up and all of our prices are going up, the food and everything else with yeah. the gas. Now, what do the planes run on? Aviation fuel. And the price well, of aviation fuel absolutely is a big component of the surge in the price of an airline ticket. It's a big component of the price of your ticket, too, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you can fly. If I left here, I could fly to Halifax cheaper than I can fly to Gander, I think. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the issue with the cost of travel inside the province and access to the province is a little bit different than the overall impact of the price of a, an airline ticket. I mean, we've got a problem. I mean, it, you're right. It's cheaper for me to fly to Edmonton than it is to Labrador City or to Wabash. Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper to go to Dominic, Dominican Republic. And I mean to say, I don't understand, but I don't understand about it all. We've got our own fuel here and our own gas and our own everything, and people are trying not to let it go ahead. And I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that if people look at the price of their tickets, if they're going to Florida or if they're going anywhere, they're hardly going cheaper than you can go up to Halifax for. And something wrong with that picture. Look, I mean, part now, of... Now, I, I, and like I said, the planes are up in the air. They are. They're pollution or they're not running on water. No, they're not. No, well, you're talking about, about going green. Well, how are you going to do it? They're not going to be able to lift with planes. No, but what's the no, point but there? That's it. But it's air travel, it's just hold on a second now. Uh, air travel is expensive because of the fuel. Yeah. And they don't put that, that's on your ticket, and then people wouldn't be doing half the flying. You're okay to bring the government, you can fly all over the world. Don't cost you nothing, only from taxpayers' money. Yeah, okay, but I, I, I thought we were talking about just me and you flying. The, but when it comes to pollution, it must be all right. <laughs> when it comes to pollution, there's actually all kinds of uh, documentation out there about how polluting the uh, airline industry is, and it's less than you think, mostly because of just how many people are on the flight. So when we talk about our carbon footprint and emissions based on me driving around in my vehicle by myself versus 350 passengers in an air, in a jet, you'd be surprised on the individual carbon footprint as it pertains to air travel versus just ground transportation. Like ground transportation is the second leading contributor to emissions in this country. Uh, air travel, again, simply because of the numbers of people that are traveling at the exact same time, is less than you would think. Petty, can I ask you something else? Sure, you can. If I got to buy an electric car tomorrow, okay? Yeah. Now, okay. I got nothing in the front of my car, in the inside under the hood, and I got nothing in the back of the car. It's a trunk, and there's two trunks, like. So if I had to be unfortunate enough to run into somebody or somebody running me, what protection if I got into an electric car? Well, they would undergo. Not only me, you or anybody. No, nothing. You got nothing. Well, I don't get the point. So what, what about the trunk? It, there's nothing there. You got a hollowed car. Put it that way. Yeah, but so well, if suppose you get the trunk of your car in a big ordinary car, it's okay. But you got the motor in the front. So if you got a crash bear or something in the front of those cars or what? They would have to undergo the structural integrity test that everything else does. I know nothing about. I never seen nothing on there about the structural thing. Usually, it shows when cars are going crashing and stuff like that, and it's on, on, on the computer more or less. I'm not too up to date on the computer, but I don't understand it. Because as far as I'm concerned, the planes are, 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 are polluting the air up, up, upstairs, I call it, and then okay. it's all falling down on us. And without uh, planes, you got nothing either. You can't get nowhere. Yeah, the planes aren't going away. No. Well, the fuel is not going away. It's already down the fuel. What? The, the gas cars are never going to go away either. I would imagine And I are. don't believe they should. Okay, uh, I think they will. It'd be cheaper to repair a gas car than it would literally one. No. Oh yes. No, 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 no. That's one thing. Regardless, if we're talking about the range for a car, the batteries, how expensive the batteries are for them and everything else, and going in to recharge them, electricity is going up ten times more than what it is now. As I'm speaking to you. Well, the cost of operating an electric vehicle is less than uh, the cost of operating the regular gas-powered. But look at the repairs you're going to have to do on electrical. Less than on your regular car. 
is not listening regular car. All the garages are not going to change electricals. Well, garages, are, you know, well, that's an interesting point. Garages will change based on how the market changes. If well, there's the more and more, I don't know. Just one at a time. I'll just take a quick one here, and then I'll let you wrap it up. So, if there's more and more electric vehicles that need more and more service for electric vehicles, then there's a business opportunity for a garage to, to service an electric vehicle, like everything did else. You, did you ever see a, a thing on ending on TV or anything about the crash? Those, those about all the cars. I never see it for the electrical ones. In the okay. front of your car, you got nothing. You got nothing if you crashed. The, the, the whole thing is coming in on the driver. I'll, I'll have a look. I, I, I really don't know. But yeah, let me have a look. Knows. It's okay and, to anyway. say no electrical. Okay. And Muscat Falls is out there. It's not going to supply the world with it either. No, but there's other ways to generate electricity better when to, it's required. Better to give to the people in the houses. Okay. Because we will have lights all our life, won't we? You, you're going to need to have the lights on when it gets dark. That's one thing for sure. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. it's not making and sense. And whoever's at the top, okay. so I haven't got a brain, I don't think. Okay. And I mean, if i got a friend and he's going to go electric garage, well, maybe that's what I'm doing it. They're giving it to the friend. I just bought an airline ticket. I feel like I've been violated. Well, I, I appreciate you were, sir. I, I probably was. You were. I, I think I was. I think MasterCard. You can get off the island cheaper and you can get that Nova Scotia. Not Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia. You can't even look at that. I got a song up there. Okay. But you can go to Dominican Republic and cheaper and you can go up there. Have you ever been to the Dominican Republic? No, sir. And I don't look to go there, tell you the truth. You wouldn't like to go down? No, sir. Put a time on the beach? Nah, nah, I'm not a beach person. But anyway... Okay. Off I, go. I do have to go to the news. I know that it's just for thought that electrical is not going to solve nobody's problem. Hopefully... They, uh, have, they uh, always have the fuel. Okay, well, uh, for All now, right. that's absolutely true. You take good care. Okay, you all, too. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Great today. Thanks. How are you? I'm all right. Um, I'm just calling today to um, briefly just say that it's World Bipolar Day. I'm actually not like a huge fan of days because I think things should matter all year round. But um, when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I had no idea that there was different types of bipolar and both me and especially my mother have said many, many times that we wish we had known because we had a stereotype in our head. And, you know, when we read about type two, it was like a light was turned on to my life. And I just uh, want to encourage people out there to know the different types. Um, you can find little charts that, that take like two seconds to read. Um, because it takes up to 10 years to get diagnosed with bipolar disorder because people uh, still don't know a whole lot about it. Well, help us understand a little bit more about it and the different types. Well, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I, I'm really scared of saying the wrong thing in that, um, that way, but there is type 1 bipolar disorder, type 2 bipolar disorder, and something called psychothymia. So type 1 and type 2 are basically defined by uh, their mania. So type 1 would have mania, which is considered the most extreme, and hypomania would be a little bit less than that. Um, so in mania, you can everybody has very um, different experiences. I guess for me, I talk really quickly. I get really, really agitated. I have a lot of what 
my friends would consider wonderful ideas and I have endless energy. I can't sleep. Um, I spend a lot of money. Uh, that's just some of them. And I actually find hypomania very terrifying. Um, but a lot of people with regular mania, it's much more extreme than that. And I think a lot of people, when they think bipolar, they think like violence. And actually, that's a big myth. Yes, some people with bipolar are violent, um, but that can be due to a lot of factors, right? So mania actually entails a lot of different things, and it looks very, very different for everyone. And depression for those two are um, a bit similar. For type 2, I know for me it's more predominant. And I have a lot of depression where some people with bipolar type 1 might only have, you know, one episode or maybe not even any. And psychothymia is just um, a little bit less of both the mania and the depression. It's not as intense. It's not as um, disruptive in their lives. Hopefully that's an okay explanation. I, I think so, absolutely. And I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but you'd know more about it than I would. And so you, you said uh, off the top that you don't like these awareness days because it should be a 365 or 366 concern and attention given to it. Do you think there's an upside for when we have these types of days? Because just from where I sit, like every day is something, right? You know, there's a celebration of something every single time you tur turn your head. Do you think mm -hmm. that brings any additional awareness and additional conversations and maybe additional attention given by governments and healthcare authorities and others when we have these types of awareness days? I do, and I don't want to take away from that. I probably was too harsh. When no, I no, no, it wasn't like harsh them. at all. And I completely understood your point. Yeah, it's just, I guess, when I think like that, I think, you know, Bell Let's Talk Day and other days because if people put all their effort into a single day, then they can kind of forget about it for the rest of the year. And that's, um, I, I know that we're asked to care about a lot of things right now. So I feel like people roll their eyes now and they're like, oh, another day, another day. You know, like what, what else do I have to care about? Um, it is a really good opportunity because I wouldn't call in about bipolar if it wasn't World Bipolar Day, likely. Um, but I also just always want to encourage people to care about stuff year-round, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah. And, you know, sometimes, I don't know what the right word is for me to use, I struggle with knowing how to talk about mental health, how to talk about mental wellness, how to talk about mental illness, because I really have tried to make this a place where we can have honest and open and frank discussions about all three. So it's, I sometimes have a hard time trying to put the words that I want around the conversation. So I guess that's where I've really leaned on people like you who are willing to tell their own personal stories, willing, willing to bring awareness based on their own personal experience, because it helps me try to figure out how to talk about it. Because Maybe it's part and parcel with the fact that for so long, we didn't talk about it. It was taboo. It was in the shadows. It was, you know, the origin of the stigma associated with it. So I guess we're all trying to figure out how to talk about mental illness, wellness, and, uh, and health and do it properly and do it positively and put, you know, put the, the proper kind of focus on it versus the afraid to talk about it. So it, it's a tough one for me. I think you do a really fantastic job, and I have to say with you that you always seem willing to learn. And I think that's all we can ask of people because 
you know, it, we are asked to care about a lot of things, and it is very confusing because we do have mental wellness and mental illness and mental health. And I would just ask that people be willing to talk about it and to learn and to not be afraid to tackle the tough stuff because I find that with mental wellness and illness now, we're, we've reached a comfortable level with some of it, but not the rest. Um, to be really blunt, I'm probably more ashamed of my illness than I was a year or two ago. Um, and it's probably because I've gotten, I've had some sicker episodes and I feel that there's like this box of things that are okay to talk about and then a whole lot of other things that aren't okay. And I have to give you credit, Patty. You always seem to be willing if someone is willing to talk about it. And when it comes to mental illness, people are scared, right? Like you're putting yourself out there. People might say you're looking for attention. They might say, well, why aren't they just taking their medication? Um, there is still a lot of stigma from many different angles and it's really hard to sum up in a five minute conversation and or a long boring article (laughs) so there's like this little sweet spot that people are willing to listen and sometimes that's frustrating if that makes sense it it absolutely does and uh, I guess I should uh qualify what I said is I certainly wasn't looking for anyone to say anything nice about me or this show. I was just admitting that as someone who talks about issues for a living, I do still find uh, those three conversations probably the trickiest to you know, to formulate and to put in people's ears so that we get the types of reactions and the sharing of stories and the honesty that we really need on this front. And so you've been a great contributor to this program and uh, the the weekly advocacy work you do for long-term access for mental health services is, I think, making a difference. And hopefully those who have the power to make uh, decisions on our behalf, whether it be at the 8th Florida Confederation Building or otherwise, hopefully they're listening and they're learning as well because that's one of the issues that I think has held us back when we talk about mental health is that the people in power probably don't know enough about it to be able to react pragmatically to be able to react in a timely fashion so if they're not listening and they're not learning then we're not going to get anywhere period because it's easy to talk about the numbers of surgeons we need and family doctors we need but this is just much more complicated and everybody presents differently so if they don't listen and learn we're not going to see the changes required you know we'll we'll talk a big game and you know one of five canadians are struggling with uh, a mental illness okay and that includes their families but what does everybody inside the other four out of five canadians understand about the issue we can push for reduced wait times to get my hip replaced we can push for reduced times to get my cataract surgery but we don't don't hear the same push on the mental health front maybe that's because people don't know enough about it i i think it is and i think it's um a lot of it is like just aren't hearing the stories because people aren't willing to share them and talk about what it takes to get better um because i know for me i've reached a point where it's extremely frustrating i'm one of the most privileged people when it comes to getting health care i have a psychiatrist i have a health care plan and sometimes i just sit down and cry because i'm like i don't know what else to do and you know i do feel for government and people who are trying to help people get better because it it's complicated and everyone is really different and i hope that if the government is listening they don't only listen to people that are better 
are in what I call quote unquote remission who are, you know, their, their medication is working and they're feeling good. I really hope they listen to people who are in the thick of it, who are struggling, who are still trying to find help because there's a lot of us out there and I think there's a lot more than people realize. Really appreciate you making time for the show, Christy. Thank you. Thank you as always, Patty. I hope you have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Christy's a great advocate, that's for sure. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go where to, Dave? All right, who it is. Linda, you're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Oh, hi. I didn't uh, realize it was my turn already. Uh, yeah, Patty, I would like to just bring up something this morning. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the oil or, or any of the other things that are happening. And uh, I know Ukraine is suffering over there, and there's a whole lot of serious things happening in the world right now. But yesterday I watched... Uh, the House, the legislation, they're trying to put this uh, bill through, C-11. That's the uh, censorship bill. That's all to do with our free speech. And uh, I'm kind of wondering if anybody is aware of that. Uh, like the first reading was uh, on February 2nd, which uh, they were trying to put it through them because of the truckers and, and all that stuff. But then they had another reading yesterday. They're still trying to push this through. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rachel Thomas made some very good arguments to try and stop it. Uh, Apparently, this is a censorship where we, none of us, will be able to have any freedom in our online. That's not true. Well, that's pretty it's, much. It's, it's uh, simply like not said, true, it though. Pretty, pretty muddy. It was pretty muddy reason. They didn't. Uh, it was muddy. There was nothing clarified. At all. Well, it's certainly muddy when someone says we will have zero freedoms to do something online. It's just not. It's not what it says. Oh, I agree to that. But I also, uh, I also uh, uh, agree that they're going to be pushing stuff uh, through. Through like uh, last night, for instance, I have to. Uh, I have to see if any of the other callers saw this last night. It was unbelievable. Um, I love to watch Rick Mercer. I watch his show just about uh, whenever I can. And now also following Rick Mercer, there's this new Mark, son of a uh, Critch, Mark Critch's show, which is fabulous. I really enjoy it. Now, directly following that, 9 o'clock or 9.30, I was uh, uh, getting my cup of tea and heard some swearing and cursing on the TV. And when I turned around to have a look, it was this new program, uh, Working Moms. And, Patty, I kid you not, if they said the F word two or three or four times within the first 10 minutes of that show, I would not be lying. And then this uh, Catherine, I think her name is, uh, oh, Catherine, uh, uh, forget now. Anyway, she's uh, she's the lady who, who wrote this show, directed this show, and stars in this show. Reitman, Catherine Reitman. Okay. Anyway, she even said J.C., the big taking our Lord's name in vain. And, and, and to top it all off, there were two little children of hers, well, you know, in the show, uh, um, sitting out the island having their breakfast. And all this language and, and, and terrible swearing was going on right in front of them. But what does that have to do with government legislation, I'm sorry? Well, uh, that has to do with if that's the kind of shows they're going to be pushing on us 
CBC is is doing the censorship uh, where they're going to regulate and supervise everything that goes on. Uh, you know. But and, that's where and, you have the choice, right? You can just turn it off. Oh yeah, you can turn it off, but you're not allowed to, apparently to the way that Rachel Thomas was explaining it. There's such a muddy uh, uh, thing statements there that they uh, there's nothing clear as to if we can turn it off or if we're going to be allowed to even watch or do any uh, of our own uh, um, websites. Uh, if they're going to, are they going to regulate everything that all of us do online? Or No, it's impossible, number one. Oh, I uh, don't know. Yeah, it is. My major problem with it. Regulate something that's worldwide, really. Sure. How can you regulate that? Well, you know what? There's got to, before long, there are certain things that are going to need some regulation. Like social media is run amok. Social media is not what it was intended to be. It's become more no, of a problem absolutely. than help. So my absolutely. only concern would be who gets to be the arbiter of truth? Who right. gets to tell me what is actually accurate, uh, real, and can be verified? Now, absolutely. there's no such thing as alternative facts, but I don't know if there's many Canadians would disagree with this statement. The amount of purposeful disinformation that's pushed is hurting us collectively, regardless of who you are, where you are, what your political ideology is. The purposeful push of disinformation is crushing us. It is absolutely pummeling society. So at some point, we've got to figure that out. Absolutely. I agree 100 percent. But um, to have this kind of a show, half-hour sitcom happening uh, on, on an evening, a family evening like that, blew my mind. And to me, I think they should be regulating their own shows right now. Yeah, but of course, like, the CBC... something wrong with that. Okay. But the CBC will... It was there for, during conservative governments. It's here during the liberal government. If the conservatives win again, the CBC, I don't imagine, is going away, even though they love to talk about defunding the CBC, which is a horrific mistake. The CBC needs to be restructured, but this whole bit about doing away with a national broadcaster is a bit rich. <laughs> I mean, it just is. Yeah. It's, it's a political rally cry. It's not based in reality. It's, it's based in currying favor at the, boat, at the ballot box. Uh, Linda, I'm off to the news. I'll give you the very last word. Go ahead. The very last word I have is why and how do those programs, family programs, get screened as, as okay to be showing with two little children? To me, in my opinion, is that that's another form of child abuse. Yeah, but I guess the parents of that child signed on to that child, and, and that's part of yeah. the entertainment business. Children need to have the approval of their parents to be involved in anything, any of these, those types of things, just like children involved with just about anything. Until you reach the age of majority, your parents get right. to say where you can and cannot be shown yeah. or depicted or photographed, unless you're in a public space, for obviously. And the sad part is, and the sad part is that uh, uh, the audience loves it and sucks it up and really, really loves it. And CBC is going to play because of that. Their ratings go up. Everything is wonderful. And uh, there's no such thing as morals anymore. Appreciate the time, Linda. Thanks for the call. Thank you. You're Bye-bye. Welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Break time. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you, man? I'm doing okay. How you doing? Not too bad. With all the shenanigans going on around the planet these days, I figured I'd call you and tell you this uplifting story. Please do. That could have had a sad ending. Back about 40 years ago, when I was a late teenager, working on the fish plant in Gervasi with my own pickup truck, of course, I'll be coming back and forth to St. John's scatter time. Well, this morning I was going down to St. Mary's Bay, I came across 
a school bus in a creek. And now uh, you know this time of the year, Paddy, I mean, there's a good runoff on these creeks, right? So I kind of find the lad. So as I slowed down, pulled in, and there was three children on the runway. One was seven. I think the other was five, and the other was three. So anyway, it seemed like they'd been there a little while because they looked kind of cold, right? So I uh, I stopped and got out, and anyway, uh, I helped them off the runway, and I, I took the two little girls by the hand, and I walked them up. Now, I don't even know if their parents knows it was me that actually saved them kids that day because as far as I know their parents were working away and they had a nanny there or a caregiver looking after the children and uh, I don't really want to say their names but the young girl passed away when she was about 18 or 20 but uh, the boy and the other girl are still living but like I said uh, could have been a bad, a bad ending. If you have any questions, sure. Okay, so you came across them. They were outside the bus, or inside the bus, or what's oh, the bus? They were inside the bus, and they were on the runway, and they were on the steps, you know. And of course, there was a good amount of water in that creek that day. Where was the bus driver? Well, <laughs> the thing was, it was the Alpha. The bus was parked up by uh, his father's premises and he pulled her out of gear with the two sisters in the bus and went down a fair distance from where the house was still and she landed in the creek and then for some unknown reason he must have left the door open I suppose or probably he must have known how to get in or anyway it's seven right but uh, years later I spoke to him about it and uh, you know he, he was a bit shy about it and I could understand and he told me his father get a good time for it. But anyway, like, uh, it turned out to be a good ending, right? So, you know, I just said I'd call him. So what did you do with the children? Well, well uh, I uh, I walked up, uh, uh, well, you know, it was about two or three hundred feet from the house. So I, I walked up, you know, and uh, I walked them up to the door. And uh, I just told them, I was a jig one in. So I watched them, they went on in the house. And then I went on home to say shots. And like I said, you know, I never, I never thought much of it at the time. But now looking back at it, forty years later, it was a good thing I did come along because, like I said, I don't think they would have made it, you know. But uh, there's another incident. I, fifteen years ago, I was up in Topsail Beach. There, there was only about ten or fifteen people on the beach, and this young girl from Ontario was there with her mom. And she got caught in the current, so I had to dive it out and bring her in. It wasn't much of a task or anything like that, but I always wondered whatever happened to her and did she know my name because I never told her my name or anything like that. But that was another incident that turned out good. <laughs> but anyway, Betty, I said I'd give you a call, but I just let the listeners know that, you know, that happened. And of course, two of the children are still living and it's unfortunate that the other young girl passed away at an early age. Well, at least you were there that day to keep them from perishing on the day. I appreciate the call, Chris. Thanks a lot. All right, all the best to you, lad. You too. Take good care. Bye-bye. Take care, buddy. All, all right. right. Uh, good on. There we go. Line number five. Patrick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing okay, sir. How are you? Not too bad. I'm... Uh, I'm a uh, long-time resident, 25 years of uh, North River here. Um, 
went on council for 16 of those 25. I never ran the last time. I've, I've done my civic duty. I feel that way anyway. I found it, a, a, I, I left it a little bit better than I found it, let's say that. But uh, I'm, I have to call in now because of, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Cummings called in and, and, um, and he said about uh, the court case. I followed it very closely. Um, when he was speaking about ballots, um, the marks on the ballots, uh, it, you know, and and uh, for me, it was plain to see that uh, like one one ballot, the the check marks it was there for like say uh, three or four check marks on it. One of them was totally different than the other four, and same with other ballots with the X's. There was uh, a couple of X's on uh, uh, ballots that were different than the other ones. Um, and how that came about, probably I should just give you a, a little bit of background. I, I won't be long, but uh, after uh, the election on Tuesday night, there was a recount on Friday night, uh, Friday, like uh, Mr. Cummings said, and uh, they found uh, 10 votes for the other candidates. So Jim was out and Brian was in. Uh, there was a, uh, a judicial recount done in Harbor Grace, and at that, uh, Mr. Cummings' lawyer uh, identified 10 ballots that they thought were suspicious. So they put them aside, and they were sent to a handwriting expert uh, uh, in the States, uh, a woman pretty, uh, uh, I forget her name anyway, but she testified as well. And... Uh, she spoke of, you know, uh, right over left and left over right uh, when you make an X on your ballot. And, and she she identified, again, she, she said that, yeah, there was different different uh, marks on, on the ballots, different. Uh, and she spoke of num uh, numerous authors is what she said, right? But uh, uh, I guess Justice Hanrigan uh, put forward and he said that, uh, his ruling was that there wasn't enough evidence to uh, to uh, go in Mr. Cummings's favor, but he did say, like you know, what I read into it, and I and I, you know, and that's just me as a layman. Uh, there were there were irregularities. So my thing is, is uh, you know, what happened? Uh, you know, uh, what happened on on the, the election night and. Uh, between that and the recount, uh, we know that a person voted that uh, shouldn't have voted was not from North River. But okay, so that's that's an irregularity, and one vote will not make or break an election. But the more disturbing was a comment from the town clerk or the returning officer was that you know she didn't know, didn't care, kind of stuff where the person was from as long as they were sworn in. So Mr. Cummings' lawyer put to her, I think jokingly said, so if a, if a crowd of uh, seniors came out from St. Pat's Mercy Home and wanted to vote in North River, you'd let them all vote, even though you know that they weren't from North River? And she said yes, as long as they were uh, uh, sworn in. So, you know, that's, that's a bit disturbing. Uh, they also said, well, uh, I guess North River is open for election business. We also know that the ballot box was not secured properly uh, on, the, on the night of the election. The, the poll clerk 
testified that she was told by the returning officer, which is the town clerk, that she can go on. It was a long day, and, you know, I'll take care of this, you know, that the town clerk said I've done numerous elections. So uh, the poll clerk mistakenly or whatever went on without the box being sealed in her presence. So there was one person left in the in the council office with an unsealed box. That's that's what was put forward. That's what the poll clerk testified to. So you know it's uh, that's that itself is is disturbing as well. So uh, I'd like to know what happened, and and I've spoken to a lot of residents here in North River. Who, who also followed this closely and would like to know what happened. You know, so, you know, to, uh, I, I, you know, we deserve to know what the truth is and what happened, right? So, so on, you know, on behalf of myself and the residents of North River, I'm asking that, uh, you know, the Minister of Municipal and Provincial Affairs, the Honorable Crystalline Howell, get involved here, send out her staff or whatever to conduct a... I don't know if it's uh, inquiry or an investigation or whatever, and, and tell us what happened. And if there were, if there was irregularities, whether they were illegal or where they were through incompetence, both are unacceptable. So, like you know, I'm I'm putting this right at the feet of the returning officer. This election, you know, there was there was problems here. So, I'd I'd like to see uh, an investigation because you know it's a sad time when. A senior citizen, 73 years old, in North River on a fixed income, got to spend uh, thousands and thousands of dollars to take his own counsel to court. When uh, uh, and and we as counsel then or as have to pay for our uh, our lawyer as well to defend. So like, where's all this money going to? Right? Sure, but what kind of investigation beyond the fact that it's already been in front of a judge? Well, uh, uh, certainly. If, uh, if there was something done wrong, as in irregularities or whatever, uh, how can we have confidence to go back again if the same person is, is the returning officer the next time? And this was said to me the other day. Like, you know, I have no faith in, in voting in North River anymore. So this person who said that, that to me is not going to vote the next time because they don't know what happened. So we, we know that there was stuff done wrong. So uh, whether that's... Uh, to, to determine what was done wrong and how to fix it, if that's an investigation or inquiry or whatever, I don't I don't know what to what to call it, but someone's got to come out and fix this before there's a next election. Well, faith in the system is, of course, critically important, and some of that may have been eroded even on the provincial election scale when we all understand what the fiasco it became. Uh, I appreciate the time, Patrick. They're flagging me off to my break late, okay, but buddy. thanks for Thank the call. You. Okay, yeah, bye. Take care, bye-bye. Uh, last break, don't go away. Ooh, welcome back. Let's go to line seven. Mary, you're on the air. Well, Mr. Daly, how are you this morning? I'm okay, Mary. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, but I'm trying to find out how come the ones between 65 and 74 are not getting an increase on their old-age pension. Yeah, and so what that was, there was a one-time uh, benefit, and then there was a 10% increase on the old-age security for 75-plus. And the only real answer to that, uh, Mary, is that money. 
I had Minister Freeland on the show to discuss that exact issue some time back, and she, you know, she made the argument that, well, as you grow older, there's more increased needs for uh, pharmaceuticals and all up and down the line, when in fact, the cost of a loaf of bread is the same for you if you're 67 or 77, so it's basically the, less money if you only cover 75 plus. That's, that's the ins and outs of it. Yes, because, like, if I have to go out to pick up groceries, I have to get somebody to bring me out because I have no vehicle of my own. So that's money going out for for them for gas to go out. And if I have doctor's appointments, I pay for that myself. I, I totally understand. You know, the cost of living between someone who's 70 and, and 80, I don't imagine is a whole lot different. So I think the basics are it would have cost more money, and consequently they made an age cut-off decision. I don't think it's fair. Because, like, like I have my bills to pay. Yep. And I have, I'd pay the council fees, and I have to pay... Like meats are gone up, fruits are gone up, vegetables have gone up, and I don't get enough to do me for the month with the money, amount of money I'm getting. I totally understand, Mary. But you know, it, it isn't fair that uh, some of the, um, it's not mostly, uh, uh, like some of the old age at 175 an hour are home, but some are in homes. And when you're in home, they take the money in your own. You allow a certain amount. Yeah, sure. The, the more you have coming in, the less support you get. That's right. I know it's because when I had my shoulder broke, I was up in the manor up in Mount Carmel, in St. Catherine's or whatever, and I see the, like, the only expansion crowd, they only got $150 to do them for the month for what they need, like, for tolerances and shampoo and body wash and all that. Whatever they got, yeah. Yeah. It's not fair. I understand, Mary. There's uh, everybody, I would imagine, in that age bracket, 65 to 74, think the same way. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of, because my sister-in-law was saying the same thing last night. You know, because I'll be 71 now in May. Okay. May what? May 20th. 20th. Uh, my birthday's in May as well on the 1st. Oh, is it? Yep. Yeah, mine is the 20s. I'm like, I, there's only myself here. My husband is dead. I was down there. He's deceased. He was five years dead to 14 of March. So, there's only me with income coming in. Are you living alone in your own home? Oh, yeah. Okay. I got home care. Right? Yeah. But they won't pay for them to go to a family doctor apartment uh, because I fell there a few weeks ago and broke my ribs and I, my daughter well, her two youngsters had the COVID but she tested negative and she had to come to the hospital to bring me home she wouldn't be bringing me back to the house because my grandchildren had COVID and as a matter of fact I felt right down in dumps because she wouldn't even take off her mask because when she does anything for me, she always gives me a kiss and a hug. And she never came near me. And I felt very shitty. 
that's unfortunate. That's too bad, Mary. Uh, we just unfortunately uh, as well ran out of time here this morning, nudging up against 12 noon. But I understand your point regarding the increase in the old age security not going to people your age. Appreciate your time. Hope you're well. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, that is indeed end of the program today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the show, the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.